0: Can I ask ask the meeting to come to order, please? We we thought that it would be a good idea to conclude the daytime portion of the program uh, with a panel so that you would get a chance to hear a little more of each of the speakers uh, and also to introduce you to Uh, an additional uh, attraction, which I'll do in just a moment. Uh, We'll go for about an hour till about uh, 5 o'clock. For those of you who are going to the, uh, who are registered for the meals, the reception will be at 5.45 in the multipurpose room uh, where we had lunch earlier today. The dinner itself will be at 6.15. And then we'll be back here shortly before 8 o'clock for the evening lecture by Justice Scalia, and uh, i want I need to say to you i 've been instructed to say to you that you will need your badge to get in um, tonight. there are going to be a great many people in various capacities, and uh, we, we are only going to admit people with badges on, so please uh, please wear your badge because it 's very important we are efficient and orderly uh, tonight. I think I was also asked to say. That there are going to be additional shuttles uh, after this event for those of you who are trying to get back to the parking, so I, we think it won't be a problem. And also, I'm told in the evening too, so we should have plenty of shuttles for those of you uh, who do need help in getting back uh, to your to your car. Is there anything else, Joe? Okay. Well, our added attraction um, is the uh, is Lloyd Axworthy. Uh, who is famous uh, in this town because he is a graduate alumnus uh, uh, of Princeton University. And we're delighted to have him back uh, today. And he's really here because he has to be here tomorrow when he is going to be uh, awarded the 2001 uh, Madison Medal uh, here. Uh, This is a medal given each year uh, by the graduate school for an alumnus or alumna who has had a distinguished career, has advanced the cause of graduate education, or has achieved a record of outstanding public service. And Mr. Axworthy has done both. Uh, So he's uh, a particularly appropriate uh, awardee of this award. As many of you will know, until very recently, he was the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, in Canada. Uh, and he had a notable uh, career there uh, in a great many ways uh, but including his concern with the uh, landmine treaty in which he was one of the uh, principal players that is uh, leading to the uh, Ottawa treaty uh, on landmines and he's also been um, prominent in the movement for an international uh, criminal court um, he studied here Uh, from 61 to 63, got his degree here in 1972, and along the way uh, he managed to start his teaching. He taught both at Winnipeg and at Middlebury uh, College, never too far from the border. Uh, But he was also very much involved in American affairs when he was here. He was a marcher for civil rights um, in Birmingham, Alabama, Uh, And he tells me that he's, in fact, been a, he's rather experienced organizer of protests. So we may have to call upon him for his expertise. In any case, uh, he was appointed foreign minister in uh, 1996. He has now completed that tour, and he's moved to uh, the University of uh, British Columbia Columbia in Vancouver. Uh, And we're really delighted to have him here today.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Professor Cates, and uh, thank you very much for uh, hanging out here till four o'clock in a Friday afternoon. I can't rem- remember ever in my memory that McCosh Hall was filled at four o'clock in <laughs> a Friday afternoon. Uh, I will say, if I might, just to uh, give a small footnote to history, uh, to uh, President Shapiro, uh, I was uh, back in those days when uh, the civil rights movement was an active uh, force here. Um, Governor Ross Barnett from Mississippi was invited to to the campus to say a few words, and a group of us decided, I guess as other students still do, to organize uh, a counter-protest just to show our views. And the point of the story is that I remember very well the uh, fear of God that was struck in me when President Goheen at the time said, look, we don't mind a counter-protest. But if they get us out of the hand and you walk on the flowers around Alexander Hall, you're all going to be out of here. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if that applies today or not, Harold. But uh, um, I, I want to first begin by uh, natural apologies. I'm, as Professor Castro said, making this uh, transition from 28 years in political life to the, back to the academy and so I'm still having to rewire my circuits to get away from 30-second clips and actually learn to speak in sentences again. Um, so I, I defer very deeply to the members of the panel who are learned scholars in this area, particularly in, in the area of James Madison, because when I when Dr. Shapiro called me several months ago and said I've been given this award and that one of the expectations, I should make some commentary about James Madison, uh, the only thing that came to mind was I re- remembered that we meaning us in the Empire burned down the White House when he was the president uh, and, uh, I didn't uh, I didn't think that was a particularly good way to start off a, a talk to an American audience, however so however, I since discovered I was uh, sort of suggesting to one of my classmates who called me up to sort of uh, congratulate me. he said, oh, no, look at he said you're in the age of political correctness now, he so said, you realize that because of the burning, Dolly Madison had to run and save George Washington's portrait, and therefore became an American heroine, and that was probably the beginning of the feminist movement in <laughs> the United States, so we will take full credit for that along the way, if we might. I, I wanted to, if I could, uh, I know your panel has a, a number of things they want to talk about, I'd like, just like to, if I could, uh, uh, make uh, really two questions, or challenges, or, or observations, uh, I've, of course, I'm totally and completely sort of unhindered by having known what they said, but in politics you never get confused by the facts anyway. So uh, I, I'm i going to come at this sort of other left field or right field, whichever way I'm standing in front of you and, and you're viewing it. But first, uh, I did want to comment about uh, the, the, the famous, perhaps the most singular, notable sort of reflection of Madison in terms of. The Federalist Papers, Number 10, on the whole role of factions and groups and how the diversity can be managed in a large uh, state because that is the one way to make sure that there is a check and balance and that that nobody can predominate. Uh, That is a has been and continues to be, perhaps uh, for we Canadians, uh, a continuous debate sometimes struggle and sometimes challenge, because it certainly has been the history of our own country, where, in fact, uh, we were formed by a a very clear negotiation between uh, French-speaking settlers, uh, uh, later arrivals from Britain, and, of course, the First Nations people. And so uh, one of the issues that has always been of uh, matter to us in our own Constitution and has certainly been uh, increasingly a major a reflection in our court system uh, in the judgments on our Charter of Rights is how to balance between individual rights and group rights. And particularly in the last ten years or so, and I, I think Jennifer can speak to this, but I'm really, because I know that she mentioned this morning, the whole demand to try to reconcile that balance. Uh, on Aboriginal rights, we have been engaged in an incredibly tough uh, and sometimes torturous, but sometimes satisfying uh, effort to recognize uh, the Aboriginal rights to their own territory, to their own jurisdiction, uh, to their own governance, without conceding their right to full self-determination or sovereignty, Uh, to the extent that we have, some of you would know, a few years back, established a brand new territory in Canada run by our Aboriginal people called Nunavut. Uh, We're engaged in a very major series of uh, negotiations on land claims, which carries with it not only just the possession of the land, but the right and responsibility and in the west coast of British Columbia where I am now located a very famous case has been decided in this case where in fact a group of Aboriginal people in the northwest corner of the province have been given a very large area of land where they exercise jurisdiction over many non-Aboriginals and in fact become their governor. Now as you can imagine that creates a lot of, a sort of neuralgia with many of the majority. Uh, The same thing, of course, is true in the establishment of language rights in our Constitution. But I guess the the, the difference, and I I really want to raise it here because if I may be so bold to observe, is that this question of group rights is one that you can no longer ignore. And and while the United States Constitution has never given it acknowledgement, uh, I think the time has come when it will be a matter of some significance, certainly as the demographics of this country change and as the recognition of... New language groups, Spanish speaking groups, which now represent what, 20 million people in this country and are establishing demands for separate schooling, language based schooling, and so on. We've all been through it. Uh, and I can tell you that it is, it's, well, it becomes Canada's second most popular indoor parlor game is how to deal with these matters. But it is very fundamental because, and this is where I'm going to take an extrapolation. This debate, this discussion, this Negotiation over how you reconcile the question of individual rights and group rights it goes very much to the heart of a number of the very crucial international issues which I dealt with over the past five years as foreign minister. It doesn't take a lot of sort of recollection to realise that the debate in Kosovo, in Rwanda, in Somalia, and I can name you any other places in which there are groups of people who are demanding that the political community be founded and based upon origin or blood uh, is about the same kind of uh, question I suppose that Mr. Madison was facing almost 250 years ago and how do you reconcile those issues within the notion of a politically sovereign state and what kind of constitutional protections, what kind of rights do you provide, what kind of charter is there? And it seems to me so the extension of rights, the, the revolution in rights that we're going through, to use a phrase used by one of our Canadian writers, this revolution in rights uh, and, the, and the experience we've had in trying to wrestle with that issue is now extending itself internationally into a global system. And, and therefore, I, I suppose that is one of the questions I, I, I pose to Madison scholars about how they see, uh, if you like, the possibility of uh, a form of international federalist papers to begin to come to grips with that particular kind of issue. Uh, now, you know whether it can ever assemble the same kind of brilliance in one place that uh, Madison and his brothers, as a, according to the latest book, uh, were able to uh, bring together, is another question. But let me also point it out in reflection of something that is probably. Equally serious, and that is not just on the question of ethnic cleansing or forming states based upon ethnicity or, or religion, but it also goes to the very broad question of international governance. Uh, said I've been very active in, as foreign minister in developing the Rome Statute and setting up the International Criminal Court. I just came from Washington today where we had a major debate uh, this morning at the Library of Congress on the question of free trade. Where the debate was really between those who were saying, who were the purest and saying, free trade agreements, period, no, no if, buts, or maybes. Where the case I was trying to argue, rooted in experience, is you can no longer ignore the international stakeholders, civil groups, NGOs, and others who are all saying, we've got to be part of the decision making. We have to be part of the policy making, we have to have our rights recognized and and developed, and yet our governance system internationally is so far behind the curve in incorporating that new reality that we simply do not have, if you like, any form of constitutional basis for beginning to acknowledge or how to deal with it. Uh, In November, I led the Canadian delegation to the Hague Convention, which is dealing with perhaps one of the most significant security issues of our time, global change. It is going to transform the world. It is transforming the world. The Hague Convention of 10,000 people was like Commedia dell'Art. I mean, you had people dressed up as whales and kind of other people throwing sandbags. You had a variety of environmental ministers sort of, uh, sort of deciding whether they were green, blue, or red. And it was not in any way designed to make a decision. And it was, when you think about it, to bring together this vast array of business interests, environmental interests, national interests, NGO interests, in this huge colloquium and expect some decision be, to be made uh, is really an act of fantasy and imagination. Where is Madison when we need him in terms of developing the capacity and the governance systems uh, a, to uh, enable us to form some form of governance? And it is particularly, I think, important for debate in this country where there is a, if I can be sort of bold to say, this tendency towards unilateralism as opposed to multilateralism, and towards the notion of how do you combine, which is the same debate that Mr. Mass and his friends went through, the whole state's rights versus national government, I think you're now seeing really being played out in the question of where is the balance between sovereign rights of nation states and the need for the international community to get its act together to begin governing on global-based issues. That's why we need, I think, an internationalist, federalist paper. Thank you very much.
0: Well I, Mr. Axworthy didn 't know what we wanted him to talk about until uh, about twelve minutes ago. And I think you'll agree that was pretty good, uh, but at, at this point, I simply want to uh, throw it open, and I would think that uh, we had to first respond to the challenge that has been put to us uh, and I'm uh, floor is open for anyone who wants to, to go first. don't be shy, Jack. <coughs>
2: I think I'd like to say something about the group rights question, because, because in fact, it, it, it seems to me that it's more important to think, well, not to ask the question, where is Madison when we need him. He's always there for me, so I, so I don't worry about that. But uh, I think one of the things that we often don't recognize or that is probably insufficiently appreciated about Madison is uh, the source of his deep commitment to a liberal individualist notion of rights, which it seems to me would, would not rest easily with the conception of group rights to which you were alluding. Uh, I, I, uh, when I read Canadian theorists, which is not often, but occasionally uh, I do, I am struck by the fact that the, the dialogue about group rights is obviously much more active north of the border than it is here. And I think the Quebec problem is, is the first example of that, but by no means the only one. Um you know, Madison shared with Jefferson uh, a, uh, a deep commitment to the principle of freedom of conscience, which I think in many ways was a paradigmatic for his thinking about rights. Paradigmatic in the sense that it m- led him to think of rights, as, as we now do customarily, in which you want us to question, that rights are essentially attributes or properties of individuals. You know the eighteenth century, I'll say in, in, in excuse me, at the midpoint of the eighteenth century, uh, if you ask the question, what is the general problem of constitutional rights? Uh, what's what's the simplest, most elegant way to describe it? Uh, I, I think the standard answer would be that the problem of rights in general is how do you protect the people against the government? How do you protect the people perceived as a collective mass uh, outside of politics? from the abuse of their fundamental rights by the concentrated power of the state and especially by the monarchy. Madison, it seems to me, reformulates the problem of rights in several ways. Um, I think first and most important uh, from our perspective, that's to say from an American perspective, Madison says that 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 traditional formulation might be fine for a monarchy, but it's not going to make much sense for a republic because in a republic the people themselves rule. And so the problem of rights, as Madison comes to define it, by 1786, 1787, is uh, not how do you protect the people against the state or from the state or from the concentrated power of the state, but rather (coughs) how do you protect one segment of the people, which he alludes to explicitly as individuals or minorities, against the majority of the population who will act instrumentally through government. This is to say, you know, the real power, and this is, in a sense this is not unlike Pauline's formulation of the Wilsonian theory of sovereignty, though, with a couple variations. I mean, Madison's argument is that the, the real authority in a republic is going to lie with the people themselves, and the real danger to rights is going to come from the majority imposing its interests, its passions, its opinions uh, on the minority. And then the question becomes, from the federalism perspective, well, where are these dangers going to be most, uh, most likely to arise? Uh, it will it be the case that the national government of the states will be will, is more likely to become the captive of factious majorities and Madison's answer of course it 's the states are likely to be more dangerous uh, than the national government okay that 's a kind of general background thought but it, you know at the heart of Madison's thinking about rights and I think what really best explains his um, his commitment to the liberal individual notion of rights was the very early commitment to freedom of conscience that I think he formed here, that he certainly was expressing very clearly by the time he went back to Virginia in the early 1770s. It's it's the strongest statement of his political positions that he makes. Even at the time when the American Revolution is breaking out, he's, he's more hung up on the fact that Virginia is arresting Baptist preachers than that the British are closing down the port of Boston. Now, where where did Madison's ideas of rights come from? Well, I think the short answer is that he, with Jefferson, shared the kind of basic Lockean conception (coughs) that that on matters of conscience, each of us, uh, I want to say almost of any age, but at least each of us as we attain maturity, is capable of of forming for ourselves, uh, deciding for ourselves, the relative truth claims of different kinds of religious creeds. And it really is a matter of conscience, and conscience is inherently an individual attribute. You know, Locke. You know, I think Locke laid this out, you know, very well in, in, in his letter concerning toleration. But you know, Locke's basic position is that, you know, at bottom, all religious beliefs are matters of opinion, and opinion and belief can never be coerced. Uh, outward conformity can be, uh, can be maintained by the state. But inner belief always remains, a, you know, a property that we individually possess. And uh, you know, what set what Madison and Jefferson apart from Locke is that they're willing to say that we don't, we, that we can, we, we don't need to have a regime only of toleration, which might not need to include, for example, Catholics about whom Locke was quite skeptical, or atheists. But in fact, we can uh, extend a, re- a regime of, of freedom of conscience to the entire society. Why? <laughs> because, if we simply recognize that all beliefs are matters of uh, that that all religious beliefs are matters of a kind of interior me- mental state and are matters of conscience, and we are always necessarily deciding them for ourselves, the individual really is the the true category the 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 true rights bearer the true holder of rights so in a certain sense what i 'm trying to say in a rather roundabout way is it seems to me a notion if 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 you accept as i do i 'm sure Professor Ketchum I think would share this view as well, and probably others here. That Madison's thinking about religion was, in many ways, though not in every way, paradigmatic for his thinking about rights, and that that conception was distinctly individualistic. That individualist conception, in turn, rested, I think, on the, the very powerful Lockean understanding uh, of what is the essence of religious belief uh, and and opinion. <coughs> Excuse me. That that helps to demonstrate uh, why, if we think of Madison as a kind of founding theorist of the American conception of rights, why our tradition is so hostile to Notions of group rights. That's to say we always want to be free on our own, each of us individually, to decide which religious truth claims matter most for us, which ones we want to accept, which ones we want to reject, which ones we want to hold on to, which ones we want to exchange for some other. So I think it's one of the curious things that American Protestantism provides, in the ni- especially in the 19th century, Madison lives to see this, um, provides a very fruitful basis for denominations to compete with one another, for people to uh, actualize their decisions, to go from one denomination to the other, from one faith to the other, to lose faith, to regate it, and so on. and, And it certainly creates a proliferation of groups who might, in some sense, be thought of as exercising group rights. And yet, under the Madisonian formulation, the real rights bearer is never the group, but the individual deciding which group he wishes to belong to. So that seems to be that, I mean, to kind of sharpen the point here, that's, you know, if what I'm trying to suggest here, if Madison is a founder, which obviously is, and is certainly a leading theorist of American rights, uh, then it seems to me there is a, there's a, there's a sharp dis- disjunction between the kind of conception of group rights, which is, you know, which, is, which for good reason uh, is so, uh, you know, is so much discussed today, and the original conception rooted in notions of freedom of conscience that he was propagating back then.
3: Well, I, I'd like to um, respond to some of Lloyd Axworthy's comments, but I, I after uh, this slur on uh, group rights, I really can't resist. Um, <laughs> uh, so, of course, I agree with you as a matter of history that there is a poverty in the American political tradition um, in uh, giving us the resources with which to think about group rights. And and the way that, but the connection that I think helps for people steeped in the American uh, individualistic tradition is is not to deny that in the first instance, the bearers of rights are individuals, but to ask what makes those rights possible and real. So for example, the issues of rights to culture that, are, that arise not just with the issue of Quebec, but with Aboriginal peoples. Um, I, I just came from a week-long session at the law school at Toronto about uh, residential schools where uh, Native children, this happened here too, and you, I understand, will soon face some of the uh, large-scale lawsuits which we currently face. Uh, Aboriginal children who were forcibly removed from their families to be re-socialized into civilized Canadians um, and suffered a violent loss of culture and now are bringing suit on those grounds, which has not yet been recognized by the courts. But the right to language, the right to culture, however much those rights reside in an individual, they can only be protected by protecting communities. You cannot hold a right to language or culture by yourself. And indeed, I think even the issue of the right to conscience is a very interesting example because it is the rare faith that doesn't create community for itself and believe that the pursuit and expression of faith within community is a crucial part of it. That what would it mean to protect the private right to conscience but provide none of the support that we have historically always provided to organized religions, to facilitate the construction of community within which people can actually experience and act out and develop their individual faith. So I think it's very important. This is, a rare, the paper you heard from me earlier today actually made no mention of my most current interest, which is thinking about rights in relational terms. But so now I've managed to insert uh, a piece of it. But let me just try to, since I've taken the time for that, try to be brief in my response, though, about to some of the very interesting challenges Lloyd Axworthy posed. The first thing I want to say, because this picks up on these sovereignty issues that we were talking about earlier, is that I think there's an even broader version of the question before us, which is whether the whole notion of sovereignty, which arose in the context of nation states, now needs to be rethought. That increasingly, Canada is just the most obvious example of a state that is not a nation-state, right? It's widely recognized. There are two founding nations, uh, the French and the English. And this particular formulation is especially offensive to the Aboriginal peoples who say there weren't two founding nations. There were many founding nations who formed treaties together in order to make the this, the emergence of this country possible. And as we reconstruct Canadian constitutionalism, we require a recognition, not of the two founding nations, but of the multinational nature of this Canadian state. It's not a request to withdraw. It's not a secession movement uh, on the Aboriginal Uh, people's parts by and large, it's requiring a reconception of how the sovereignty, partial divided sovereignty of multiple nations can work together in a cohesive way in a single state which nevertheless holds some sovereignty as a collectivity. Now these issues of of the international world which we touched on in various ways earlier today I think is just Crucial, And the the first point is that, and I I must say, I think one feels this more sharply in Canada than in the United States, that our participation in international agreements like, like NAFTA and GATT actually interfere with deeply held traditional aspects of sovereignty. So that in particular in Canada, issues of our commitment to... Uh, social welfare in various ways, in the promotion of culture in various ways, are threatened by claims that the government has signed on international trade agreements, which now interfere with the capacity of that same government to exercise its ordinary sovereignty in these other realms. So that there's a, there's a very real transposition of our understanding of sovereignty as we enter into international agreements because of the economic clout that the U.S. Uh, holds in many of these agreements. You probably are not conscious of this on a daily basis in the same way that uh, Canadians are. But I think the, real, the way in which Madison would welcome this invitation, I think, is to ask the question of how we can work towards genuine democratic accountability as we move into the importance of these international agreements. And that takes a couple of different forms. One is, what are the structures by which we hold the representatives of our government accountable democratically when they go off to negotiate? And that those paths are very unclear, and partly because many of these uh, international agreements are so highly technical. But also, uh, not just how do you make these, these international aggregations workable, um, but how do you set up within those um, emerging international structures new systems of accountability so that they can do the work they have to do of creating structures of economic, uh, international economic trade um, without losing – democratic accountability and at the moment I think we're just collectively at a loss on this and the kinds of things that I've heard of I I heard an interesting paper proudly proclaiming that big advances in the GATT procedures adjudicative procedures they're going to get some precedence and and it'll be binding in various ways and there have been agreements to this are so highly technical and kind of judicialized that although they work economically in terms of providing greater stability and predictability, they do virtually nothing for us in terms of the democratic accountability side. So that this old problem of how you do what we need to do for making property functional and commerce functional at this new global level without losing the accountability, which we only know how to work out nationally, um, is, I think, what the the new Madison today would want to grapple with.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Jenny. I, I think I would like to uh, encourage now everybody to plunge in on anything. So, if you've got a particular bee in your bonnet, somebody said something which you thought was awful or wonderful. Why don't you tell us?
1: Here are the audience.
0: Well, first I want to give them a chance to interrogate one another. Otherwise, we'll turn to the audience.
3: <laughs> oh, you mean us?
4: Yes, you, John. Well. Hearing how Madison's conception of rights is deemed to be sort of adequate for modern needs, I follow the argument that has been put forward, uh, and of course Jack is absolutely right uh, about tracing uh, Madison's sensibility about rights to the religious liberty struggles in Virginia in the 1770s and the 1780s, uh, starting off from the right of conscience. But one thing that's never been mentioned uh, when the question of rights has come up, when Madison uh, – when the issue of a Bill of Rights came up to the Constitution – Madison, of course, opposed the Bill of Rights. And one of the reasons why he opposed the Bill of Rights was he said it is impossible to enumerate the rights that might need to be protected uh, in their requisite uh, amplitude. And he was afraid that if uh, a Bill of Rights listed certain rights, those rights that were not listed would thereby deemed uh, from there onwards not to be rights. And it's here we have the origins of the Ninth Amendment in the Constitution. Now, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an expert on the Ninth Amendment, and I well understand that the Ninth Amendment law, which I gather is a field, is a bottomless pit. But I'm wondering whether the Ninth Amendment, which is a very Madisonian part of the Constitution, might not be a platform from which some of these questions that have been raised about the inadequacy of Madison's conceptions of right might not not be built up and making a more relevant Madison who would answer some of Jennifer's concerns.
0: Any takers on that? Okay.
2: Well, you know, oh, there, you know, there really is no law of the Ninth Amendment. You know, it remains, you know, kind of the wild card, Joker of the Constitution. It's you know, it's alluded to by uh, Justice Douglas in the Griswold case. Uh, <coughs> Although, I mean, I, I have, I've often thought that one could in fact, develop interesting theories of constitutional rights, especially as they relate to modern notions of rights, such as, you know, right to privacy or, you know, sexual rights, uh, perhaps a right to die under the concept of unenumerated rights uh, in in the Ninth Amendment. Um, I I want to come back, I think a slight repose to to Jenny here, and that, um, you know, I have a more radical vision of what Jefferson and and Madison were up to. Um, This will will be terribly naive, and, and I don't think it's going to, Respond to your sensibilities, but uh, part of me says that you know the world would be a much better place—group uh, rights, individual rights, whatever—if uh, each of us understood what I see as the essential correctness or truth of the Lockean, Madisonian, Jeffersonian formulation. As yes, to say, I think Locke, I think Locke got it right philosophically. Uh, in and ter- in turn, ter- the, the it being on on the critical question of the relationship between the individual. As the, as the rights bearer, especially in, in the realm of religion, and you know, it seems to me when we're talking about group rights, though we talk about linguistic minorities often, but around the world we are often, more often, talking about uh, groups which have a strong religious component. It seems to me that Jefferson and Madison's radical position. Jefferson himself says in, in, his, in, his, in the notes for his, his speeches at the Virginia Provincial Convention, where he's first introducing the disestablishment uh, legislation, he, he writes down a little bit from Locke and he says, "This is good, but we can go further." This is, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's that's basically what he says. We can go further. We can go further. We don't have to. We don't have to stop at toleration. We can actually go to kind of radical free exercise. We'll just get everybody to understand that their religious, opi- all our religious beliefs are essentially matters of opinion. Once we accept that, all once we accept the truth of that premise, <coughs> then we need then we needn't fight anymore about matters of religion and public policy. And I've often thought, you know, the world would be a much better place if that, you know, if, if, if that admittedly skeptical uh, position on the truth claims of religious belief were more generally appreciated and accepted. It would be a good way to get people to stop killing each other or persecuting each other in the name of the, their belief in the truth of their own religious convictions. Uh, now, I don't know how well this would work in Islamic societies and, you know, in the Middle East or, you know, Pakistan or Indonesia or whatever, but it seems to me there's a very profound insight there. Uh, that is underappreciated both by Americans and ar- I would argue by the world Board General.
3: I think I shouldn't talk anymore right now. Why don't we take I think, other yeah, questions I think and I'll, I, I'll answer them. I'll insert it. All right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Unless Wait, we're a- still friends, you know, we just met. <laughs> Unless there's another question here, I'm going to go to the audience. It's Come
5: on, sure. Uh, hmm? Yeah, about...
0: Um, Can you wait just one minute, because Mr. Axworthy wants to say something
1: first. Uh, no, I just wanted to, to again, observe in this uh, formulation that um, Madison is a lock-in and that the source is individual rights. I think in philosophy and theory that's right, but he was also, as I read him a long time back in 18 Mason's class, he also was a very practical politician who wrote the Constitution on the run as he was making decisions and developed, I thought, a very workable system by which groups, which he acknowledged were the form that human nature would lend itself into formulation into groups, a way of governing those groups, Uh, which is almost a disconnect from the, quote, the uh, exalting individual rights by saying factions are going to dominate political life and therefore we have to find a way of ensuring that no one faction becomes predominant, i.e. the majority. And that to me is is the political question or the governance issue. How do you begin to formulate where there is such an incredibly broad-based expression of group rights as part of the rights revolution that's taking place in the world, both in uh, democratic countries like ours, but also in many other countries, that you have to start writing constitutions that begin to take that into account and do it both at the national level, and I think eventually you have to look at it internationally because group rights are now being expressed at the international level. And I think Jenny's quite right. You no longer live in a world where you can sort of say that we are We're not simply not there anymore, Just so doesn't exist.
5: Locke and Madison. Uh, I find myself coming to the defense of Madison against Locke. <clears throat> Uh, Locke's achievement, it seems to me, is mainly in the area of uh, rule of the majority. When it comes to civil liberties, I think he cared more about liberties of certain people than others. He actually singles out certain groups, speaking of groups, as somewhat less worthy of civil liberties. Jews, Mohammedans, atheists, and Catholics. And we have to see Locke in the context of the uh, the revolution of 1688. Uh, and uh, so what I see is Madison taking the next big leap, uh, and I think uh, comparing the two is uh, unkind to Madison, because Madison is speaking for individual liberties. About um, about uh, the Ninth Amendment being uh, pit, this really confirms, vindicates the wisdom of James Madison. As you pointed out um, Madison was against the Bill of Rights precisely because he believed that there was no way to list all the freedoms. Look at the First Amendment. There is no freedom of thought, no freedom of conscience. And what does the Supreme Court do? The Supreme Court has been forced to read these things uh, into speech uh, and uh, so forth. And then finally, 1965, Griswold Griswold versus Connecticut, Supreme Court said, well, let's start using the Ninth Amendment, which says, enumeration of freedoms in the foregoing amendments shall not be construed to deny or disparage other freedoms. Basically what this meant is that James Madison was right. You cannot list all of them. Uh, And he was right on another another count, namely until about the 20th century. The Bill of Rights didn't do much good at all. And Madison had long since been dead. So at least until he died, I think he was absolutely right that the Bill of Rights itself wouldn't do much good unless the people cared about these things. And the best illustration of Madison's wisdom is, I think, an alien and sedition rights. He was right there, and he could have said, I told you.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. And Other questions now? Pardon? Oh, it's a lady just right there. Thank
6: you. Uh, what I'm worried about is that um, that impeached liar rapist in the White House, Clinton, signed an agreement with the UN for the International Criminal Court, which means that our uh, citizens can be tried for uh, made up crimes or crimes over in Belgium. And uh, the point is, it takes away our sovereignty It's part of the one world government that the Rockefeller Rothschild are trying to put over on us, Texas, the UN. We should get out of the UN. Okay. That's,
0: there are a lot of things there. I think I'll move on, yes. <laughs>
7: First of all, I want to say I've had more intellectual stimulation today than I've had in 15 years of living in Arizona. So I want to thank you all for
6: this.
7: (laughs) Second, I want to get to the uh, Federalist Papers again. In the Federalist Papers, Madison says from a study of history that the greatest threat to free government is when you get too great a maldistribution of wealth. And he proposes a number of ways to deal with that. Among them, a house that represents the average person and the Senate that will protect property. He seems to add things to that as he goes along. He helps to invent another party so we can choose one party if the other party gets to be too close to one faction. He talks about in his essay on parties, silent laws which can, in effect, redistribute wealth. I think all of these things no longer work, that his options simply are no longer feasible because of the problem of money in politics today. And I, uh, we've only heard a little bit about maldistribution of wealth. Ms. Nadelsky mentioned it uh, at least per- per- <laughs> peripherally. That's a tough word with a <clears> throat> sore throat. And uh, I'd like to hear some more from the panelists about why we don't hear much about it. And do they agree with me that perhaps these options are no longer feasible given the fact that money plays such a huge role in American
0: mm-hmm. politics? OK, it's a, it's a good question. Does anybody have, uh, want to make a comment on that? Gordon, you're smirking. <laughs> well, I, I don't think we're
8: going to be able to eliminate uh, money from from politics. We 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 probably will have some kind of a. Uh, I'm an 18th century historian, so I'm speaking simply as a citizen here. I have no expertise whatsoever, uh, but but um, we we might be able to to eliminate money in uh, soft money, which will probably finally destroy the political parties once and for all since that's the only reason for their existence now is to collect soft money so we have all kinds of unintended consequences that may result from our reforms but the idea that somehow or other if politics is important and winning is important that somehow you can eliminate money from the process is simply utopian so one way or another that problem is with us I, my own solution would be full revelation immediately But um, that is not the route we're heading, and and, uh, I I, I simply don't believe that there's any possibility whatsoever of eliminating the role of money in politics. We saw that. We're seeing that daily now with with the pardons. It's inherent in the the structure of democracy. There's no way to cut it down.
1: Lloyd? You you can't eliminate it, but you can limit it. Uh, For 28 years, I represented a constituency of 100,000 people. Each election, I could spend no more than $65,000. It was based on, I think, two and a half cents per person. If I overspent by $5, I would have lost my seat, because we had an independent electoral commission in which anybody who could challenge the use of money, even to the point where someone gave me a used computer, we'd have to prorate it to make sure that the value of that used computer over the three months of the campaign would be given a valuation. So there are very strict rules that, that you can apply if you want to. I mean, that's up to you. And you simply, you, you limit how much is spent. Uh, you also, at the national level, say that uh, there's free advertising on television and radio but you can't exceed certain kinds of limits and that there is public support for candidates so that there can be uh, some equal distribution so that if you get 15% of the vote you get half your money back so there are ways of providing limits but you have to make a decision that's what you want to do and you can, as a result you're not subject to to the the PAC groups and the corporations the same way and I I think that uh, for me having been in public life for close to 30 years uh, for me it was a great protection it was a great insulation not to have the, 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 the demand, and I know many of my friends in the U.S. Congress, who the House of Representatives, who are all basically raising money the day after they get elected, and are raising it to the to the next election. We simply didn't we didn't have to feel that kind of pressure. I'm not saying that money isn't there, but you can put really tough rules on it to limit its application.
0: Thank you. Yes, please. Yes.
6: There was a second half to the
9: gentleman's question, and that had to do with economic equity in the society at large. Would you speak to that issue a bit?
0: Well, Jennifer spoke to that in in her talk, I think. I don't know if you want to say anything more.
3: Well, it's, it's hard to figure out exa- how to do this in in two minutes um, but I I guess what I would say is that I think we should take seriously our, our starting point here of Madison and the way in which he always asked how is the basic structure of the institution going to affect who's going to be in it, how the institution is going to work, how is it going to work with other institutions and at least to open the question of um, why it is that, uh, by and large, it's still many of there is the division between the, the Senate and the House, but even the House, these the people in those positions simply do not have the average income of the average American. That is, the, I think we, we've heard from. And it's not just my view, but uh, Professor Wood also said, Madison hoped to. I think they successfully designed institutions to draw into them the right kind of men of substance and property. It worked. Um, and, and it's not an accident that it worked. And we can try to figure out why it worked and why it continues to work um, and try to ask ourselves, in addition to the kinds of uh, concrete suggestions um, that Mr. Axworthy made, what are other kinds of structural changes that we could make so that the people who are in our legislatures look different? So that's one answer. Um, The other thing is, again, I think the the animus against redistribution in the United States um, is a very powerful one, and I think it goes back in part to the founding concern about protecting property. I don't think think the central problems are in fact constitutional. I think they're political. They they go to the structures. I don't think the answers will lie, uh, despite some of my comments earlier, just with the transformation of uh, the Supreme Court's equality jurisprudence because it's gonna have to go deeper into the actual structures of our institutions so that we could move towards a somewhat more egalitarian set of policies but as you all know at the moment the drift is if anything in the opposite direction
0: thanks yes please why don't don't you wait for the microphone thank you
8: thank you I had a question for Professor Meyer I was fascinated with your thoughts which I due to the limitations of time on the two Supreme Court decisions that you spoke about, uh, the main decision and the, I call it the ADA decision, in terms of where we seem to be going. uh, And we jokingly spoke briefly about, it seems to be we may be back to Boudin with the court as the king, (laughs) but would you comment on where you think we're going
7: with all of this?
9: Well, I, I see a direction uh, toward retrenchment in a way in terms of the uh, yeah, yeah, can get a the advances we made in terms of maybe not, certainly not economic equality. We know that the statistics indicate that the long-term tendency in American society wasn't toward a radical uh, dis uh, uh, inequality of income over a couple hundred years, and this changed what? 30, 40 years ago, maybe uh, precise, but within our lifetime, my lifetime anyway, that this has changed in an in acute way. But there, simultaneously, seems to me interesting. There are some level, some, some areas in which we really do insist upon inequality. Uh, I, 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 you know, what I was thinking about while, while Jennifer was speaking was the widespread sense in this country that there's something wrong about the health system, that everyone should have access to some. Basic health care—that uh, that shouldn't somehow correlate with wealth. Uh, there's a kind of a decency, I think, in American opinion, and a willingness to go the long, the long way to go. This that the political leadership doesn't seem to uh, somehow be able to pull off. I think there's been an extraordinary generosity as well toward toward minorities, and this idea that rights are individual and not group bothers me a bit because, like Jack, I'm conscious of the extent to which religious groups were very important originally in the, in the articulation of rights, uh, to which African Americans were, were a party to the realization of genuine universal rights in the 19th century. Seems to me groups have been in the soup for a very long time. Now, you know, the ADA decision does bother me. Uh, I don't suspect we're going to have a lot of backward-stepping in terms of racial groups. The court seems to privilege them in that regard. But I am personally disturbed by the potential cutting back on equal protection of the law to people with disabilities. Now, you know, many of us, I suppose, at some point have said, boy, that costs a lot. I mean, this is just not a minor thing. But I guess I have personally experienced the fruit of of this new policy on disabilities in a way that's made me rethink it. That is, I I've mentioned to some of you, I have a deaf student in my classes at MIT. Uh, and I teach discussion classes. I don't lecture a lot. Um, and I thought, how am I going to handle a deaf student in this class? Well, this boy was raised in obviously a wonderful family, sent him to good schools. He doesn't seem at all intimidated by his disability. He wants to participate fully. And I think because of these laws, MIT, which, uh, you know, may not be affected by this immediately because it isn't a state institution, has provided interpreters at tremendous cost. And you would say, boy, that costs it. But what I realize is that the fruit of this has been so beneficial, uh, not just to the student, but to everyone else. And that is, we all stop when this boy wants to talk. We listen to him. Uh, students who who may have walked uh, by a, a person with a disability with the ordinary kind of discriminatory attitudes that a lot of people may have suddenly realized, you know, this kid's as smart as the rest of us are, and he has a right to express himself. So there's these two interpreters who. Tell him what other people are saying, and then tell us what he is saying, and it works just fine. And we've all become a little bit more humane. Now that's a different expression of equality. Uh, I, I think it, in some ways, it counterweights the inequality of wealth, which is disturbing to me. But I think it's quite correct. We, I don't feel the same readiness in the in the in the American people to intervene. Uh, but if we're cutting back on the generosity toward People with disabilities. Who else? One group after another seems to be going possibly coming on the block. There's a cost to this in our humanity. That's that's my sense of it.
0: <laughs> okay. Yes. Please. Can you take one back. <clears throat> um.
6: Thank you. This has been wonderful to come and listen to everybody and to be with the other people listening, and um, especially in the snowstorm. And my question has to do with what this democracy we now um, cherish and um, hope to govern into our children's future will be like for our grandchildren's grandchildren. Maybe you can um, bear with me while I get the question out. It seems like Madison, when he... um, fashioned um, a concrete, he tried to fashion the Constitution as a concrete vision, um, like the USS Constitution, much like Columbus set sail on a ship across an ocean that he genuinely believed he would come to something on the other side. And I see the Constitution and the government we now have that Madison couldn't possibly, I mean I can't believe if he walked in the door if he'd just been dropped down in the past two weeks and he saw what had been going on here, I can't imagine that he, he wouldn't be as shocked as many of us are. And I wonder, though, what he would do about it, how he would then advise what questions he would like to pose, um, what might bother him, and if he would say, like I do, while there is this great um distancing from groups for example all the soft money does come from groups not individuals um, what, what he would do about that to to hand off or to develop the constitution um, so that our grandchildren's grandchildren um, have the same or similar world the goodness that we have and I'd like to thank all the generous people for the generosity and I'd, I'd like to ask what would Madison do now if he had been just a drop down here in the last couple of weeks, what would he be saying and talking about? Thank you.
0: <clears throat> Thank you. I think this might be a good place to end, and I'll put to the panel the question: <clears throat> Excuse me, what would James Madison do if he appeared here this evening?
2: This is what was known as WWMD. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I I have a nasty confession to make. I mean, Barb was nice enough to call me a public intellectual. And, I like to crank out the occasion a lot bad, as does Pauline and I think Gordon. But, you know, we're really just 18th century historians up here. Uh, you know, we are citizens and we have our particular interests and cares, and sometimes they're informed by an expertise, and sometimes they're no different from anyone else's. I, I happen to think we're a lot better off, and I, I know Gordon would certainly agree with this, um, I think Pauline would too, that uh, if we try to understand the difference between the present. And the past. You know, and I try to suggest this morning that one of the striking things about Madison, it seems to me, is after 1776, as as, as, as informed as his thinking is by the examples of history, he understood that um, the Americans had really embarked on a different course of their own by virtue of, you know, <coughs> uh, the Revolution and Independence. And much of what they'd learned and received, though, it remained, you know, from, from prior authorities, though, it remained generally useful and informative wasn't really dispositive. You know, you had to kind of, I wouldn't go, you know, sometimes, sometimes they are making it up on the fly. They're certainly doing it under exigent circumstances. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's better for us to reflect, uh, and this is probably closer to Jenny Nadelsky's position, you know, reflect on the differences between our world and his, to try to, sharp, to try to sharpen our understanding of our society by appreciating the very different context within which it's formed of institutions. Emerge. One thing I, I think most about Madison, and you know, I was doing my book on the Constitution, I, I came upon a, a wonderful letter, but a very disturbing letter that Madison writes in, in January 1788 to uh, Edmund Randolph, who, you know, the governor of Virginia. Randolph was a trimmer. This time he's kind of going back and forth between being a Federalist, being an Anti-Federalist, not clear whether he's going to support the Constitution, and, and he was still endorsing the idea of a second convention, which Madison thought was absolutely nuts. Because you'd have big pre commitment problems. You know, you never get agreement the second time around unless everybody knew what the conflicts had been the first time around. It's one of the rare letters in which I think the mask really drops from, from Madison's sense of diplomacy, in which he says, he says to Randolph, look, <laughs> paraphrasing again, most people on most issues aren't really, ca- on an issue as complicated as the Constitution, really are not capable of forming their own judgments. They really have to follow. The judgments of their betters, of you know, the opinion leaders. And so he's saying, in effect, to Randolph, look, if you and George Mason and Patrick Henry hadn't gotten a bee in your bonnet and decided you wanted to oppose the Constitution, we wouldn't be having these problems to begin with. There is in this letter, and I, really, I know very few other letters in, in Madison's correspondence which are really quite as direct, and really in a sense, quite as naked as this one, saying, look, public opinion, which Madison deeply respects in principle, is oftentimes very flawed. It's very uninformed. So what am I suggesting here? Well, one part, to think serious about that Madison, you know, the Madison who is in some ways deeply conservative, deeply reactionary, you know, libertarian too, in some sense might seem to be rather disturbing. I mean, this is a very anti-democratic kind of statement. But at the same time, it's being... uh, Delivered in conjunction with Madison's uh, own effort, and he was uh, the, the architect of this as, as well as some of other things, to insist, to uh, a point that Pauline was talking about a little while ago, that the Constitution, to, to be a Constitution, had to be ratified through some fairly direct expression of popular sovereignty. Uh, and he was very clear in this. He's clear in this for lots of reasons, and some of them are very political, and some of them are, are very theoretical. So what do we make of this? We have this deep private pessimism about d- democracy, and it, sh- and it shows in the, exactly the kinds of attitudes about elitist office-holding that Jenny has some anxieties uh, about. Um, and yet, on the other hand, there is a deep commitment as a matter of principle to the to the concept of popular government. I think, on the whole, we'd be better off trying to come to grips with that con- the conflicted origins of our democratic system. And, and, you know, and, instead of asking WWMD, what would Madison do, how about wwmd sub i what what do not what 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 did no, no wd and whatever
9: <laughs> <laughs> you
2: know i'm under the weather so i can't be i can't be responsible for, for the album yeah. uh, what you know what did madison do and why did he do it thanks
3: Well, I think uh, to to carry forth the the two-lobe imagery that that, uh, Jack offered us earlier, that Madison was somebody who always was thinking empirically based on his experience and reflecting on deep principles and abstractions at the same time, and that's what gave the depth to his insights. I, I think the first thing he'd want to know, to ask all of us, is to figure out where are the threats today? Where are the threats to liberty? And I think one of the answers is something that's come up already. It's, and it's, I think, things that were neglected at the outset in 1787. And a key one is the interpenetration of economic and political power, which, while it cannot ever be eradicated, it can be significantly transformed. Another threat is, I think, the uh, worsening still of the problem that Jack just identified that that Madison so candidly addressed there. That is that our issues, if anything, have become even more technical, even less accessible to easy public debate and deliberation. But we shouldn't do what Madison did, which is to think that the answer to that lies in getting a good elite in office. That just cannot be the right answer. I think, despite the fact that I think in some ways, uh, Canada is, a, is an interesting sort of counterexample. Um, Gordon said earlier that he thought I was claiming that Canada was more of a participatory democracy than the United States. And I did not claim that. I don't see it that way. It is a much more deeply egalitarian country. And there are those who argue that these two things are related, that is Canada has had a benign elite, not as concerned about democratic excess ever as the Americans, and that they have used their elite power to form, to direct a country in a more egalitarian direction (coughs) than the United States. So, but nevertheless, despite this uh, possible benign example before us of a benign elite, I think that our answer has to be to go back to taking seriously all the rights Madison was committed to in principle. And to ask ourselves, what would it take to transform, as I said, our institutions in terms of who ends up in them, but to transform the nature of public discourse so that people have the kind of education, have the, the engagement with politics to educate themselves informally, to have ongoing conversations about public debates, which I think has sinks to an ever lower and lower level in the United States.
1: Okay. Lloyd? Well, my response would be, in answer to the question, what would Masson do if he arrived? He'd immediately take himself to future shop and buy a laptop computer and uh, probably a cell phone, and maybe if he really wanted to get sophisticated, go wireless. Um, Because that probably is the transforming experience that uh, politics and government are now facing in terms of shifting the way in which people participate. Uh, It is opening up a vast array of opportunities for individuals to get information to begin with that is unfiltered and undirected by gatekeepers the elite if you want to use it uh, it has immense power uh to mobilize uh public opinion uh in in a global fashion not just in national terms but in the global fashion behind a variety of movements whether it's environmental or whether it's a um, dealing with uh, women's rights or whether it's dealing with the, the question of uh, humanitarian rights. An enormous, uh, incredible shift that's gone on that uh, is confusing people in most governments and uh, at both at the national and international level, not sure how to deal with it. Uh, on the other side of it, there's a dark side to it, there's an side to it, it is also becomes a very powerful tool by which people uh, can use it to exploit uh, children sexually, that they can use it to you know, proffer and traffic in drugs, they can use it as a, an immensely powerful tool uh, to excite fanaticism, <laughs> extremism in political terms. And uh, the, the structure, of, I think that too global strategy of the, the practical... Uh, and the intellectual uh, is let's put it this way, I think the demand far exceeds the supply right now. There's a being able to figure out how that works. But I think there are still some principles as I read it that are, are very much embedded in the writings in the Federalist papers that begin to deal with the question of how do you uh, begin to uh, provide balances? Uh, against these competing trends. But if you don't understand what that impact is going to be, then I think uh, you lose the opportunity to substantially democratize your governance. At the same time, you have to provide some response to the way that it doesn't become uh, simply a total anarchy. Uh, throughout. And I, I underline the point that, I, and I think it's one that uh, I'd like to see some good 18th century historian scholars put their mind to how you govern in the 21st century based upon those principles, because right now the level of international governance uh, is not keeping up with the hard reality of the kind of world we're living in. Thank you. Gordon? Didn't...
8: Well, I want to just say a couple of things about um, first about group rights and, and Madison. I, I think he did have one conception of group rights, and it turned out to be the states, and, and we heard, um, we heard uh, Pauline Mayer talk about that, and that turned out to be a disaster uh, for, for, the, for the country in a sense uh, that, that, uh, that the civil war resulted from these group rights. So insofar as he believed in any group rights, it were the states, but I wanted to make some comment about this problem of uh, equality and our great disparity of wealth. I happen to believe that the United States is one of the most egalitarian nations in the world, despite despite the great inequalities of wealth. In fact, I can think of only a couple of nations where uh, the the sense of equality is is, is equal to, to ours, and that may be Australia. That is to say, the psychological equality, which is really crucial, that one person feels that he's as good as another person. That's a very important uh, element of e- of equality. And the reason why we Americans can put up with this great, great disparities of wealth is because we believe that wealth is the least significant of the ways in which one person can assert superiority over another. If someone says to you, I am better than you because my father, or because of my grandfather, because of my heritage, because of my race, because of my uh, ethnicity, there's not much you can do about it. But if someone says, I'm superior to you because I have more money than you, that does not bother Americans because they say, well, all right, just wait till next week. I'll make more money. So I think that's a very important part of our, of our psyche, a very important part of the culture that allows, allowed Americans in the 19th century and allows us today to put up with these gross disparities of wealth despite feeling very equal to one another. I think that's a very important part of the culture that's not easily uh, understood, I think, by
0: people in other, uh, in other nations. Good. Uh, John, want to say a word, and, and, and if Pauline does, I'll close it there.
4: I think another way of casting the question which we're trying to respond to is the issue is whether Madison was an optimist or a pessimist about the future. And as Jack mentioned, there are deep strains of pessimism uh, in Madison's thought about uh, majorities and uh, democracy democracy uh, and things like that. Uh, and the laws of social progress and political economy that he uh, studied and was familiar with through his education, partly here at Princeton, did lead him to envisage, way down the, the, the passage of time, a very bleak sort of future where the distribution of property became so unequal Uh, that the property holders would be a very small minority of the population and there would be this great propertyless uh, mass, and this is possibly dangerous. Uh, Yet at the same time, uh, Madison, although you can find pessimism, never succumbed to pessimism. Uh, uh, He was always, somehow he retained a, a spirit of optimism that despite how no matter how serious the problems were, that some way uh, that the political system that he'd put in place would would come up with solutions with it, a bit of institutional tinkering here. And uh, in the 1820s, we find occasional references in letters when he's talking about this sort of thing. And uh, he, one of the things he talked about as a, as a remedy, and I don't really know quite what he meant here, was education. Uh, education somehow might help Ameliorate or uh, deal with some of these uh, some of some of these issues and uh, education inequality, of course, is very much a function uh, of wealth inequality, and that does make uh, this a, a contemporary or a relevant concern. As uh, we might well wonder today, you know are we, in fact, taking enough care of education? And it's, it's I think it's traditional in America that sort of educational opportunity has in fact been a great vehicle of mobility and one way of softening the edges uh, of other forms of uh, inequality uh, that, that arise from uh, from distribution of wealth. But um, uh, uh, leaving aside all the reservations about the what would Madison do sort of question, uh, maybe what he leaves us with at the end is, is, is a spirit that even at the end of his life, no matter how serious problems looked, he, he, he remained optimistic about the future uh, and that uh, there would be ways of, uh, of working out these problems and we need not get too depressed about them. And, Maybe that's that's where we, where we leave them. I don't know.
9: You know, I was struck in in rereading Madison's writings, well reading them in some cases, from the late 1820s and the 1830s, the extent that he was optimistic. There was a letter in which he said, I, I am hopeful. And I was very struck by this because it seemed to me an, a, another exception to a generalization Gordon made in his book on radicalism, the re- American Revolution, about the founders dying very pessimistic. I don't think Madison did. In fact, he felt much calmer about the Republic by the 1830s than he had in the 1790s for good for good reason. But I'm going to pick up actually on an, another distinction that Gordon made almost in passing earlier, which is one I've thought about a lot, his distinction between what we can say as historians. And here I would say not just the 18th, but hey, we work on the 19th century and occasionally I even work on the 20th. Uh, and, and our role as citizens, uh, the problem, I mean I'm very conscious of it because I abrogated the line. I violated the line once. I signed that historian's letter on the impeachment and I regretted it ever since because I think we extended our expertise to an area where we were uh, we, we shouldn't have been. Uh, in any case, What can we do? Well, you know, we can make these comparisons. I think Jack mentioned that. I did that in my talk. I can talk about the concept of sovereignty as it existed in the sources I study. I can read the Supreme Court decisions and say it's different. Uh, When I start saying what would Madison do, however, the, the problem is that you tend to take Madison as a support for positions in contemporary politics. And, and who knows? The guy's been dead for a very long time. <laughs> uh, you know, um, obviously, my concern—if I were to say what would I—if I were to say what would Madison do—I—I I can't help but find some parallels between the direction the Supreme Court is making today and the kinds of fears that he expressed in. In uh, 1798 and 1800, I see uh, a court that's starting to imperil basic rights, the whole rights revolution of the 20th century depended on the court's ability to use the 14th Amendment to enforce the first ten on the states, and and, uh, that tendency is in a little jeopardy this week. Uh, I'm disturbed by the extent of claims of power by the court, I'm uh, disturbed by its partisan character. But hey, I, those are my my anxieties as a citizen. I think uh, they are certainly informed by the way I have studied history. But I don't think my study of history determines any conclusion. What I will say is, I think you know we do live in a more democratic world in some way than oh, in many ways certainly than, than than Madison did. And among the things that have been democratizing are our capacity to get. Information uh, that that compare with would be experts. Hey, you can get the complete uh, text of these Supreme Court cases either in the New York Times or, if you like, on your computer. Uh, just type in the name of the case, and it will tell you where various sites where you can get it. Cornell, FindLaw, whatever. Uh, read them, think about them. Princeton graduates are. By definition, intelligent people. you don't have to be an expert. You don't need to have gone to law school to read these. There are ways in which legal experts can certainly uh, inform us, but there's an awful lot we can figure out for ourselves. This is not really rocket science, but there are issues that it that that affect all of us, and certainly, hey, if there's an elite, I would guess the educate the the uh, Graduates of of, of major distinguished American universities are are appropriately in that, in a meritocracy. Uh, The crime would be if we didn't use our God-given capacities for the good of the republic by investigating these issues and coming to our own determination as as citizens.
0: Well, I'm I'm going to... uh Thank everybody in just one second. I remind you again that uh, you need your badges to get back in here this evening. The doors will be open at 6.30, uh, but the lecture itself isn't until uh, 8 o'clock. It's been a wonderful panel, it seemed to me P, you have skirted my favorite maxim about historians, which is that historians do not predict the future, they predict the past. <laughs> I think we've done a pretty good job at going beyond that. I'm going I'm to violate my role in saying one substantive thing, though, which is, and I'll leave you to chew on it, I think James Madison would have been much more upset by Brown versus Board of Education than by the Garrett case. But we can talk about that another time. And let's thank the panel.